Okay, welcome back to Firewall. As usual, I'm your host, Bradley Tusk. My guest today is Eric Daimler. Eric is the CEO and founder of Conexus. He's a thought leader in artificial intelligence. He's got a book coming out. So lots of reasons to have him on the podcast. Eric, thanks for coming on. Good to be here. So let, I guess let's start with Conexus. What is it? What does it do? Why'd you create it? You know, all that. Yeah, Conexus was a spin out of MIT that I discovered when I was in uh, working with the Obama White House. It uh, is really addressing the place where most AI falls down. Uh, you know, I've been in and around AI for 30 plus years in uh, various capacities from uh, an investor, a researcher, uh, to a, a, a you know, professional venture capitalist, and, and then lastly, a, a, someone working in policy in the U.S. government uh, as, as an AI advisor during the Obama administration. What was a privilege about that position, besides uh, being, being of service to the American people and working with some uh, wonderful uh, uh, others on uh, fulfilling some large goals, which was a, a viewpoint on where the largest organizations fall down in their deployment of AI. You think this was 2016 when uh, AI began to enter uh, the public discourse in a really big way. It's the reason uh, uh, I was uh, likely hired, but hopefully it was also you know, a lot of luck, a lot of skill and preparation, I hope. But uh, uh, it, the, uh, uh, the problems were suddenly becoming manifest where a lot of people have gotten the the memo about uh, data is the new oil and all of that, but uh, they were beginning to be disappointed uh, or sense uh, a disappointment in the returns uh, on that investment. I found uh, Conexus or the, the research that now uh, uh, motivated the software upon which we have built a, built a firm uh, being funded by the Department of Defense and the Department of Commerce uh, at that time to solve some really thorny problems uh, unavailable from just applying uh, machine learning or statistics or you know, deep learning or, or whatever uh, other name you want to give to the, the trendy technologies of our time. Yeah. Well, Eric, what might be some examples of those types of problems? Well, I can give you an example of the motivating problems, and then I can give you an example of some of the problems that it solves uh, today that are more commercial. The uh, the big example, the most expensive, I guess, that directly was the one that uh, caused us as U.S. taxpayers to spend way more than was necessary on the Joint Strike Fighter, you know, the F-35, also the F-22. Uh, mm -hmm. We had to redo uh, everything we ever knew about avionics instead of just porting over what we had learned over decades from the F-16. And that's because we couldn't guarantee the integrity of the data models upon which the F-16 was built and refined. We might ordinarily recognize this as some old IBM machines and some old computer programming languages. Uh, machines no longer built. The languages uh, are usually programmed by people that are uh, often in retirement or approaching retirement. That can't just be uh, migrated with guaranteed integrity uh, over to a modern infrastructure. So what the Department of Defense was exploring was how we don't do that again, because the bill gets large and uh, you have to go through the testing in literally life-critical environments 
all over again. This discovery in math uh, solves that problem. The other issue is in the supply chain. We're living through that over the last couple of years. The Department of Commerce saw this back in uh, 2015, 2016, when they were confronting this issue about the, the U.S. supply chain, let alone the global supply chain, being unable to interact with each other in a way that uh, uh, really represented the productivity gains we see in a digital world. So the, the example there was you know, during COVID, we have a question about, hey, where's my personal protective equipment? Where's my PPE? Uh, it, you know, and it, it, on which container, on which ship, in which fleet, in which ocean, you know, is it? And, you know, should it go to, uh, uh, you know, to Houston or Hanoi? You know, that, that is actually a really big problem. And I hadn't quite realized it uh, until I uh, dug into that problem because, you know, we're just consumers. You know, I, I'll just go on, you know, some random e-commerce site and, and ask for my, my five-pound dumbbells to be delivered tomorrow. <laughs> the, the, the problem for the U.S. government. By the way, in the pandemic, was really hard to get dumbbells and expensive. It was, it was hard. And this is why, because these databases don't talk to each other. You know, to put it in ordinary terms, you know, we all interact with, with Excel and, and maybe we've heard of companies like Oracle, but, you know, those systems don't talk to each other in a really friendly way. That's the presenting problem. So, be, before, so way back to your question, you know, what motivated yeah. this? What does it do? Uh, why should we care? It, we care because we want our data to talk to each other. Way before we're able to apply some fancy uh, machine learning or deep learning, we have to have the data all in one place and all connected in a way that has guaranteed integrity, if it's a if it's a really high consequence uh, environment, that's what uh, I saw was necessary. That's what I took out initially as an investment, and that's what I uh, began to then turn into uh, a, a real a real firm. That's what Connexus is. So you've mentioned both machine learning and AI. Just if you can give the audience a quick distinction on, on wh- why they're different. Well, yeah, there's there's a definition of AI that uh, that's uh, uh, I guess technically the most accurate, and then there's the definition that I find to be useful. Uh, I'll give you both, but I'll start with the one that's useful. Because I was asked by this you know, seemingly a couple of times a week by members of Congress. This is this is what I came to. I said that it's it's helpful to think of AI as a system. Uh, we start with a system that senses, acts. And then uh, learn, sense plans, acts, and then learns from the ex- experience. So we can say sensing, collecting data. It could be the sensor on top of an automated car. It could be the sensor in my house for air quality. It, th- any collection of data, that's a sense part of it. And then that'll go through a network to plan. And this may be traditionally what we think of as AI or a learning algorithm. But we're going to plan. We're going to think. We're going we're gonna to cognate the after, after that, we're then going to act on that data and then learn from the experience. And that learn from the experience is what distinguishes a uh, learning system from just an ordinary thermostat. Uh, the, the modern thermostats would say, hey, I'm learning that Eric uh, comes home at five and likes it uh, you know, cooler or warmer. That's a learning experience. So in an automated car example, we can collect that data on uh, driving down the road to a crosswalk. We then send it to 
the planning part, sense and then plan. The plan would be, uh, hey, is this a shadow or is it more likely a person uh, on that crosswalk? And then we have to act on it. We say, does the car slow down? Does it stop? Uh, or does it just keep going? So sense, plan, act. And then it learns from the experience. So the next time that car passes through that intersection, it will uh, get better at detecting the light patterns to make that decision more quickly. You know, I, I live in San Francisco and I have uh, these uh, automated cars being tested on the road. Uh, uh, it, it feels like every 15 or 20 minutes, a, a new, a new uh, automated car comes down testing. Those aren't uh, uh, just learning anything. They're learning that particular intersection with different dynamics of the light. Uh, and traffic at that particular time. Uh, that's the learning experience. So since plan act, learn from the experience. That's a useful definition. I think for the 99% of us that are not AI researchers, uh, if you were going to be uh, pedantic about it, you could say that the, the there is deep learning. That's a, that's kind of the trendy technology that can be applied to very, very large data sets. I'm talking internet scale data sets. Deep learning is is often in the in the discourse because it was the, the technology that uh, uh, powered the breakthrough in protein folding that uh, won against humans in the game of Go. Deep learning emerged as a subset of machine learning. Uh, machine learning is the traditional probabilistic uh, AI that uh, uh, that began to emerge in the early two thousands and in late nineties is becoming super uh, super popular and and filled many a, a science fiction book. Uh, that itself is a subset of AI. Now, there are non-machine learning AIs, deterministic AIs. So there are deterministic and probabilistic AIs. <laughs> but that, that level of detail, that's the precise way of talking about it, but it's not terribly useful for you know, what we do on a, on a Thursday afternoon. Yeah, exactly. Um, so Conexus, t- tell me, you, you mentioned kind of it being transformed from a government-granted entity into a, a firm. What, what's the business model? It's a software product. The, the, the platform uh, upon which Conexus is built works with very large organizations from uh, the, the U.S. government in defense applications and security applications to some large inter- energy companies that you've heard of and shipping companies uh, to uh, financial firms. What it foundationally provides is a link between data models in a way that is guaranteed. So and here, here's an example in a, in a way that just added speed to an organization, if not in a life-critical in, uh, environment, it, it, it really helped uh, uh, one company crush <laughs> its competition, and that's Uber versus Lyft. You may wonder, you know, Uber and Lyft I'll, were, were I'm familiar with about, that one, yes. Yeah. I, I use yeah. this as an example because if people at least understand the business models of those companies with, uh, uh, with, with a lot of clarity, uh, you know, those companies were talked about in – uh, as as being you know roughly equal equally comparable companies for a long time, but uh, you may wonder why in 2022 Uber really looks like it has crushed Lyft. It's because their math is better, and their math is better because of Conexus. They they were able to crush Lyft with better math. Math wins, and it wins in this particular case because they are able to respond to ordinary business questions with greater speed. So yeah, yeah. T- yeah. So today's you know in August in Manhattan, it's hot. You know, generally, uh, yeah. so it may be hotter than normal, and and Uber wants to respond to 
that uh, rider demand and give appropriate incentives to the driver supply. Uh, they want to respond quickly. And the way they had to have done it was to have worked with the databases as they grew up. They grew up having one database for Manhattan, another one for Queens, another one for, for Brooklyn and Long Island. Every, and then they would have had to compare those statistically that, that added some friction in time and in accuracy. They, they have some very smart people. They have an effectively infinite balance sheet. They had a greenfield environment with which to develop a, a, a theoretically optimal IT infrastructure. But like every other organization, they're not focused on an ideal IT infrastructure. They're focused on their business. So they grew up with these many, many databases, and it had this friction for answering ordinary business questions. Supply demand. How do I, how do, I do pricing? So what they did is look around the world about how to solve this problem they found that the existing commercial solutions of manual processes uh, are inadequate for the job. Then they, they looked next door to Stanford. Uh, how do I solve this problem? The resources at Stanford said, you know, actually, there's no solution in computer science. You have to look deeper into the level of math. Uh, you have to look in this domain of math called category theory. And again, talk more about that. Uh, uh, then they looked about who, who are the leaders in, in software expressions of category theory, uh, and they found Connexus. We happen to be about 40 miles north of them. Uh, we worked with them to integrate what, what was for them 300,000 databases into one universal wow. data model that gives them the alacrity that their business demands. What, what year did you start working with them? We worked with them at, starting in 2018. Got it. Makes total sense. Cool. Um, it seems to me, I'm curious if this has been your experience, when you ask regular people about AI, you get polarized reactions and they're really one or the other. One is like, I can't wait. It's going to be amazing. You know, so many things are, are, are building functionality to be so improved. Um, and the other is, you know, it's going to be the death of humanity. Um, what, what do people get wrong about this and why is it such a polarizing question? Yeah, boy, there's a lot of things to say just about that question. Uh, I, I, I can you know, I guess I'm going to give my summary, uh, and then I'll give President Obama's summary, which is that uh, my, my summary is that the degree to which the uh, artificial intelligence uh, uh, that we speak of today fulfills on uh, our our dreams and, and some sort of beautiful utopia, or uh, plays into some sort of Hollywood narrative of a dystopia, uh, is up to us. Uh, and so my my mission, you know, the, really the reason we're talking and the reason that I spend my time on, on our firm uh, and the other companies with which I'm engaged is to have people uh, enter into the conversation at the level that's appropriate for them uh, so we can all uh, talk about how we want this technology to uh, interact uh, in our society. I think it's, it's really up to uh, all of us to, uh, to get on the field and determine uh, how we want it, how we want it to uh, to play out. It, 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 we could even say it's not an overstatement uh, that for the survival of of Western civilization, we need to be embracing the life changing uh, technologies uh, behind AI. And my fear is that we don't understand it and will there therefore resist it. Uh, so I, I want people to be engaged. Uh, President Obama, it, he, he had. 
in in his in the Oval Office, he had this um, uh, oval 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 shaped carpet, and around the around the outside was the inscription that uh, often ascribed, uh, often often attributed to Martin Luther King. The long arc of history bends towards justice, and what President Obama would remind us is, is that uh, it's not without our involvement, and, and that's what I like to say uh, about our AI. It's not without our involvement that AI will fulfill. Uh, on on our dreams, and I'd say without our involvement, it, it could very well bend towards that uh, Hollywood dystopia. And how do we? So look, it seems to me there's sort of three categories or three groups that are sort of relevant here in determining the answer to the question you posed or the point you posed, which is there's business, right? And what are they building? And and I think we always have to assume that they're you know attempting to maximize profits because that's that's why they exist. Um, there's government who could and should regulate this, and occasionally you get someone like Obama or Bloomberg who genuinely kind of are interested in the stuff and understand it and hire people who get it. But by and large, you know the U.S. federal government and most local governments are completely you know inept when it comes to regulating tech, and we don't even, we don't even have basic you know data privacy rules, let alone AI regulations. And then there's sort of academia which may know a lot, but in reality, neither government nor business listens to them, right? Which means their, their impact is fairly limited. If, if the way I just laid it out is true, and it's basically therefore in the hands of business, what direction does this go in? Well, so one way to attack this uh, is to just think about what we can do and what we need to be concerned about. The uh, the, the framework from which to think about AI can certainly be uh, helped along, uh, I hope, by the definition that I provided. The uh, uh, Another way to think about it is just to think about it as uh, automation or augmentation. So yeah. how do I want to automate a process can give a, a lot of uh, um, uh, a lot of juice to any conversation where I'm confronting uh, the loss of jobs or I'm confronting uh, some sort of sentient AI uh, or I, I'm worried about data privacy. You know, what do I want to be automated and what do I don't want to be automated? <laughs> you know, if left up to my own devices, you know, me and all my other fellow computer scientists, we, we have our own quarterly objectives and we're trying to make better software. We will link automation because it will make for better products. But we want feedback from, we'll, we'll say society writ large, about where we might want a circuit breaker or where we might want an auditor uh, to, to verify that this is actually what we want. You know, take the automated car example. We will, as a society, need to determine what that car does as it rolls down the, the road. So I, you know, I was just in a Waymo car in San Francisco a couple of weeks ago. Uh, uh, you know, Waymo is going to authorize San Francisco for automated taxis uh, within the coming weeks. Uh, they uh, are, are, are testing this out on various roads about and, and have determined someone, some of these roads need to be blocked off <laughs> because they can't, uh, uh, they, they, they can't yet compute uh, what to do on, on some steep roads. That's one. Uh, another one is where there's steam vents. So you can imagine in Manhattan, this happens probably a little too frequently. Uh, uh, yeah. And there's some other roads uh, where they have to just block them off. We as a society will need to be part of that conversation about how we want those automated cars uh, to be engaged, when we need the driver to intervene, uh, uh, for example. So that's one framework about how to balance the needs of the business, the government, and, and people. 
So it's a good segue into your book, uh, The Coming Composability, The Roadmap for Using Technology to Solve Society's Biggest Problems. So let's just start with what is composability? If composability is the future. Uh, the, the world is, is uh, uh, going through uh, an emergent uh, uh, compositional revolution. Uh, th this is the kind of the ground beneath people's feet that is uh, not being widely recognized. So the point of the book is to uh, bring people into this awareness uh, so that they can interact with AI uh, uh, as, as citizens and also work to determine what sort of skills they and their kids uh, want to uh, develop uh, over the com coming decades. The concept of composability is uh, similar to modularity. So think of a, a Lego set. Uh, the, 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 the difference between modularity and composability is a little bit like a train versus a train system. We know, we know of okay. boxcars on a train, uh, but a train can only go a couple of miles long before you have to get a new train. Uh, a train system can expand in infinite directions at any point in time. That's what composability is. It's an infinite expansion. What you then need for infinite expansion uh, with, a with a guarantee of integrity at its base is you need that math of category theory uh, to define the foundational logic that gives you this the integrity uh, for life and death circumstances. That's, that's where the world is going. It's going towards uh, emergent compositional systems. It's happened for the past several decades, and it has manifestations in the world that I, uh, that I talk about in the book and we can expand on now. But that's what people need to be aware of is we, we, are, we are growing increasingly emergent compositional systems. Got it. So if I were to throw out just a, a societal problem to you, do you feel like you could identify what the AI solution is? Uh, give me an example. Immigration. What do you want to automate inside of immigration? I don't, let's take hunger as, as, a, as a better example. You know, yes, right now the world does not have the distribution systems to match food with those who need it. But AI presumably could really help solve that, right? Because you're connect, like you talked about connecting all the databases. Um, to a certain extent, you're building where they need to be built and connecting the ones that already exist. Uh, and the combination of that plus, you know, you know, genetically modified crops and everything else, you could see a technological solution to solve global hunger. Um, so maybe the better question is, what are the issues that you think are most ripe? to be solved with AI and with automation. No, that's great. You know, so the thrust of our conversation is around systems uh, speaking to each other and systems speaking to each other with a guaranteed of integrity. We might add to that a guaranteed integrity that has circuit breakers and audits that society has determined to be useful. You know, some of the linking of these automated yep. systems can have right. catastrophic outcomes, and we don't know some of the, the the adverse effects. You know, the example we've been living through for the past decade has been social media. We thought it might just be simple to have an optimization function called engagement. It seems benign uh, in 2010, but in 2022, that one simple optimization function of an engagement finds us uh, emphasizing. 
uh, outrage. You know, that's what you get. That's what get drives engagement is outrage. Right. So that's a right. that's an adverse effect that we didn't know in 2020 in 2010. And that may uh, uh, suggest circuit breakers in, in any of these uh, complex automated systems. Can the circuit breakers just get inserted at any time? Because, look, as a VC, I try to be responsible and think about, OK, if we invest in this company and if it succeeds, you know, here's what the societal impact would be. But like. I'm willing to believe that Jack Dorsey and Mark Zuckerberg and the others didn't know in 2005 and six and seven that what what the problems were going to were going to be. Um, do you think this now gives us a way to much more quickly insert those circuit breakers and, and kind of limit the harm? I think move fast and break things was a great framework uh, for uh, digital only environments in 2010, given what we knew. Uh, I, I, I think there's general agreement that uh, the, the the adherence to that principle uh, uh, exceeded the responsible timeline, you know, uh, by many, many, many years. Uh, you know, had had uh, adults been in the room uh, uh, earlier, that that framework uh, probably could have shifted once the damage uh, being done became clear. In other environments, it's obvious right from the get-go. I don't want get fast and break things uh, for uh, my oil and gas infrastructure uh, or for my commercial aircraft uh, or for, uh, gosh, any number of other enterprises. You know, I, we need this uh, provable composability that is provided by the domain of math, the category theory. So it seems like, and social media is obviously the, the easy example here, but I think there might be others too, that whenever technology opens up, you know, somewhat dependent on how human beings then react to it and use it, our worst nature always seems to prevail. Um, if, if you think that that's the case, as you're thinking about, you know, developing systems, developing software and everything else, do you just try to anticipate here's how human beings can use this for real harm and those are the circuit breakers we need to put in? Or are, do you kind of go in neutral? Like what, what's the underlying view of humanity in assessing what's likely to happen? Well, some of this could get into political philosophy, but we don't need to do that to uh, come up with some neutral examples, which is the car. Uh, you know, it's not about human nature, bad or good, to determine uh, whether my car... Uh, needs to stop, slow down, uh, or keep going uh, at a crosswalk. There are circumstances that we need to define uh, with a, a high degree of specificity uh, before right. we uh, uh, advance or as we advance uh, automated vehicles. You know, it's funny, the, the press uh, covers automated cars uh, quite a bit, but I, I, my personal view is automated trucks uh, are going to be on the road uh, much more quickly than automated cars. We, we have an investment in an automated truck company, not in an automated car company for exactly that reason. Yeah, if, if, yeah if, there's, if one, nothing, there's one a couple hundred miles south of you in, in Pittsburgh that I am a big fan of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I've, I've, I've talked to those guys before. Um, you wrote an open letter to President Biden, and there was a statistic there that kind of blew us away. What you said was, by the end of your first term, 99% of all data ever will have been created since you took office. So 
I mean, I, I guess I understand it, but it seems like such a remarkable statement that I almost want to ask, what does that mean? <laughs> you know, what is uh, often appreciated is that the growth of data uh, continues to be uh, quadratic. Uh, what is really less appreciated is that the growth in sensors is also growing quadratically. So you really have this combinatorial explosion of, of knowledge where we're linking uh, data to each other. Uh, th this is just unfathomably large. Uh, what is completely different in 2022 than even in 2016, uh, you know, when I left government or 2017, when I left government, was uh, it, 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 that there, when, when you go from billions to trillions, there's really a phase change, you know, liquid to gas, solid to liquid that that takes place in how you have to relate to the uh, uh, available information uh, around you. We, we don't we're not even talking about metadata uh, at my firm. We're, we're just actually talking about the math that represents the metadata. That's how we are having to uh, interact when we have this unfathomably. Uh, large amount of data uh, that is getting created uh, uh, for uh, for the U.S. government right, in, in any number of applications, including where we are in defense and intelligence, uh, to any of these large industrial applications where uh, you have a, a, a very a large amount of data uh, up and above what was available five years ago, any point of which could cause a catastrophic error. That is a fundamentally different way of thinking about it. Uh, the, the thinking that's required in order to work with these systems. That's what I'm talking about. But yeah, but the statistic yeah. is true. How do you decide when there's a commercial market for data and when there isn't? Because like we get pitched by startups all the time and half of their business plan is, oh, we're going to sell the data to hedge funds. And it's like if every startup who said they did that, like hedge funds would literally spend 100% of their money on data from startups. Um, right. What's, what's the rule of thumb here? <laughs> is, is the data useful instead of the flippant the flippant answer you know the, the funny thing about that is you, you can quickly see whether or not that data uh is useful so you know let me try it out and let me you know throw it into my model but often integrating it into my existing systems is non-trivial and uh uh you know I, I i developed a statistical arbitrage hedge fund uh, uh about a, a decade ago you know bringing data more data uh to bear we found uh, actually isn't the uh, constraining item for our, our, our statistical arbitrage hedge fund. We had to exclude data. Uh, we, 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 we always looked about uh, how to do uh, our model with less and less data. Uh, and what the conclusion we came to was it was a blend of some very simple uh, metrics in order to drive our math-based uh, algorithm. So I, yeah, I'm I'm hugely skeptical uh, of collecting uh, more and more data. I think people are being misled by the concept of just collect more data. That as we started this this whole conversation, data is a new oil. People got that memo. That's all fine. But uh, you know what I do with it uh, is it, it, you know, people are, are don't know they don't know the answer to that question. Got it. All right. Let, last overall topic, which is you, know, you work in the White House. You worked for a president that I think was, you know, genuinely aware of the need to better understand and regulate 
technology, but I think he was the exception, not not the rule here. Um, what should the right process of government technology regulation look like? And is anyone getting it right right now? Do you think the EU is is doing a good job with it? Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I have a couple of answers to this question, and I just laugh because the, the, we, if we start with the EU, there's obviously some very smart people uh, uh, in the EU that are advising the government. But when they put out some some regs, uh, uh, what it was in early, it was in 2020, early 2021. I mean, it was really laughable because they described uh, AI as really everything that was on my resume. It was really ridiculous. Uh, uh, so everything that could possibly be touched ever uh, uh, will will get regulated in some unforeseen way. You know, and they they put out some regulation at the end of last year about pseudo anonymization uh, without any description about how to do it. Uh, uh, and and the, the difficult part is if you ask researchers even how do you plan to uh, abide by this regulation in Europe uh, for pseudo-anonymization, they don't know. Uh, you know, my guess, and I, I don't know, is that they're going to have to use some abstract math like type theory or, or category theory. Uh, but nobody knows. And until some company other than Google gets fined a billion dollars for a violation of that regulation, it's just going to be ignored. So that's an example I would say about doing this the, the wrong way. Uh, right. Another okay. example of doing this the wrong way is brought to us by the New York City Council, which uh, introduced a, a concept for uh, disclosing automation in any sort of recruiting process, which is just so ridiculously misguided. Uh, you know, w- what part of the recruiting process is not automated in some sense? I, I have to screen uh, resumes in some fashion. What what additional value does it get if I put my eyeballs? I passed that bill, so I'll, I'll reveal why we did it, which is we had a portfolio company that um, the only really major differentiation, differentiation between them and other HRAI companies was sort of their ability to sort of add in data on race and ethnicity and all of that and really try to help companies meet, meet their goals around that too. So it was it was purely for us a regulatory vote play. When I was familiar with that bill, when it got passed by the city council, it seemed uh, 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 like it wouldn't be providing any value. You know, more we can just look at the amount of paperwork that's required to get a, a, a mortgage uh, in most states uh, and find that more disclosure doesn't necessarily mean more clarity. Yeah. Yeah, un- understood. Um, yeah, obviously, a lot the of other, I think I think we can all be encouraged that uh, you know since I was uh, working in the federal government, the White House has added uh, an AI office uh, staffed by some very competent p- uh, people. So this woman with whom I work uh, now leads that AI office within uh, the the group in the White House uh, that I that I uh, w- was fortunate to play a, a part in. Um, uh, so I, I don't want to say like five people do my job now, but, but five people do that job. It's pretty, it's pretty great. 99% of all data is being created in, in the last two years. It kind of makes sense. Um, yeah. if you could wave a magic wand and get Congress to pass one law, either regulating or deregulating AI in some way or technology, what would it be? I want some, uh, uniform laws, uh, across the country about how to, regulate autonomous vehicles and autonomous systems. Yes, yes, yes. Um, so look, because you know, we've, we've been involved in that too. And I think as you remember, legislation kind of made it through you know, some subcommittees uh, with bipartisan support. 
and that and then my understanding is the Teamsters complained to the Trump White House about it, and that basically killed it. Um, what do you think the roadblocks are today? I mean, I think, I think ultimately it's just going to be implemented state by state. Uh, I, I don't know how it's ultimately going to happen. You know what? You know, we have a inherent tension in the the infrastructure of transportation be and the licensing being controlled by the states uh, and yeah. the, uh, uh, the the safety requirements being controlled by the federal government. So you know that's going to take a while to uh, to work out. Yeah, I mean, right. It's interesting. Look, states are doing a, I would say, overall a far more proactive job around regulating autonomous vehicles than, than the feds. I think the challenge becomes once you're crossing state lines, which is necessary for all interstate commerce, and just depending on where you live, you might do that three times a day. Um, it, it's still very limiting. So, like for the the company Kodiak that I had mentioned, like we were able to get them the ability to test and operate within state boundaries. So we picked really big states like California and Texas and Florida. Yep. yep. There was a lot of room to run, but it's still very limiting on the business if they can't cross state lines. I think what's going to happen uh, uh, next is a coalition of states uh, uh, that, are, that are transporting oil north of Texas. I think that's actually one of the biggest uh, transportation um, uh, corridors uh, that, that, that is available. Uh, I, I also think there might be a similar uh, uh, collaboration with some states in the West. Uh, and that's the, probably the easy uh, way to predict that this is going to evolve. Interesting. I know we're way over on time. Um, just when did your book come out? Uh, to have my publisher tell it, probably 2023. We don't know. We don't have a date. Got it. Okay. So we'll, when you know it, let me know. and We'll, we'll let people know they can start pre-ordering it. Um, yeah. Great. And Eric, how, how do people learn more about you, about Conexus and all the stuff you're doing? Uh, Conexus.com. And I uh, can be found on uh, LinkedIn and, and the usual media sources. There we go. Eric Daimler, thanks so much for joining us. Good to be here. This is fun. <laughs> 